So this morning we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll specifically uh, be dealing with verses 4 to 8. I do want to read uh, chapter 13 for us just to set a context overall, and then we'll look at the verses and uh, seek to understand what they mean. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. does not brag. It's not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Let's stop there. <coughs> As we look at this text this morning, uh, we look at what is love? What is love? It is for Paul to explain love in the context uh, related to the Corinthian church, the defining characteristic that the church ought to have today. It is the call of the world and the church at times. It is a call to love. But here it is not simply love that is in view, but it is hatred. Paul defined love Explicitly, But you'll notice he also defines what hate is as he sets our course toward the qualities of love and what love is not. The call to love, as Paul highlights it here, is never a call to abandon the truth. But the call to truth is never absent from the love of Christ abounding in those who make the call. So we have to understand that in this context, Paul is still trying to thwart the division of the Corinthian church. But here, in order to do that, whereas before he explained love and its excellency, and he explained a couple of hypothetical scenarios, in this case, he is dealing with love as it relates to defining what it actually is. So love is not simply a feeling here. You will see that love is an action. We talked about this last time we were together. It's an action sourced in the one who gave it to us. We love him because he first loved us. Those are the words of Christ. I want to turn your attention to 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, where John reminds us of that point. And he highlights that related to the God who is love. And so if you look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, uh, well, let's look at 18 first. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So there, the context that John has given is the desire for those who truly love God that they must test the spirits. See if they come from God. And so I believe that Paul is writing in the same way, that Paul is trying to deal with the same issue, that Paul is trying to fight against the same encroachment on the love of Christ within the body of Christ. And so here he defines it. But I believe that we must define it 
the way that John does because our love is sourced in the one who gave it to us. Our love is from Christ himself. We do not respond to this call to love uh, simply from our own experience, simply from something that we have to build up within ourselves. But we love him because he first loved us. He is the purpose for our love. He is the source of our love. And he is the one who calls us to love. So then, since this is true, it is Christ alone who perfectly models love for us. It is Christ alone who defines love for us. So when we look at this, especially joined to our next context, to our next group of verses that we'll study together when we begin to look at the perfect, I want you to understand that all that we are called to do from Paul to the Corinthians, but also to us, is sourced in Christ himself. That's what Paul wants us to know. So there we see love in the Christian life. It's tied to a response to what has happened to us. The most visual example for us is what we see take place at the cross of Christ. But here, what I want you to understand is that Paul does not simply desire to define love as to what took place outside of us and apart from us, but rather how it drives us to act toward one another. It's very simple to talk about love theoretically. It's very simple to talk about love even theologically, but miss the practical elements that make the theology real for us. Paul wants the Corinthians to act in a loving manner toward one another, not to simply know what love is, not to simply know what our source of love is, and not to simply know uh, who Christ is in the face of that love. He wants all those things, but he also wants them to act in a certain manner toward one another. It was Jesus himself who said in John, I bring up John to you again because John spoke very often and very plainly about the love of Christ. But it was Jesus himself who said in John 13, 34 to 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you. You see, there it is that he's the source of our love, but that you also love one another. So it's not simply enough to recognize that Jesus has loved us first, but that that must drive us toward a love for one another. And then he says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So this is Paul's defense. It's also his exhortation in the sense that it's his defense against the factions that have developed. But it's also an encouragement to the Corinthians to do what they had not been doing well. Namely, that is to love one another. Somehow I believe what we face today is this has been deemed inadequate by the visible confessing so-called church at times. The call to love is no longer acceptable. There the call to love is no longer seen as the means to do all that we do. Even in contending for the faith. Because if one contends, it must be born from a heart that was loved by Christ, is loved by Christ, and loves those whom Christ loves. In the absence of love, the world sees the so-called confessing church for what it is. People who are cold toward one another and slaves to religious formalism for no reason except that they are self-stimulated by this. That their own sense of activity is stimulating enough for them, but there doesn't need to be true Christian sacrificial love for one another. 
But this is not the love that Paul defined for the Corinthians. So then here we look to the qualities of defining love. The qualities of defining love. And I word it that way because that is actually the name of our sermon this morning. Defining love. Verse 4, Paul begins where he begins with all of the attributes that he ascribes to love. He begins with explaining what love is. In the first couple of verses that we looked at the last time we were together, he deals with the at the end of uh, verse three. He deals with the futility of sacrificing and self-sacrifice absent of love as both a motivation and a quality sourced in Christ himself. So then he moves essentially to what love is and then what love is not. In verse four, he begins with saying love is patient. Love is patient. And what he means there, what he means to share with the Corinthians is that love is patient in the sense that it perseveres. It's not quick tempered. It is enduring. Love, Paul notes, is slow to pursue uh, retaliation and revenge. So the quality that he first ascribes to what love actually is and what should be the motivation that flows through the practice of spiritual gifts and our fellowship toward one another is this quality of love first spelled out for us is patience. Patience is persevering. Patience is persevering. In this context, as I've said, it is that patience is not quick tempered. It is not impulsive. It is enduring. And as I've said, it's slow to pursue retaliation. It is not always the absence of anger, for at times we are at war with our flesh. So at times we become angry. But it is the forbearance of anger. Love is the essence of that. And patience being what love is, is the essence of that. The forbearance of anger. We delay to allow anger to run its course in our hearts and to be expressed toward those whom Christ has loved. We will not act in reckless abandon. This is what Paul is highlighting for them. I believe that it is a direct call for us as well. We will not act with reckless abandon. Instead, we delay our anger to suffer well in the face of anger and in the face of the things that tempt us to anger. It is the presence of righteous indignation. It is the presence of righteous indignation. That means to be essentially touched, angered in a righteous way with the things that anger the Lord. You'll see, even as we progress through numbers in the very next context, the Lord's anger is kindled against the Israelites. He's angry because they're complaining. They wish that they could go back to Egypt. But that is a righteous indignation. Jesus overthrowing and overturning the money changers operation. That's a righteous indignation. God hates that. God hates when his place of worship becomes a place of commerce. But for us, we delay our anger to suffer well. We delay our anger to suffer well. I wish I could tell you that what Paul is saying is. That when you have have love, you never become angry. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that you forbear. 
that you do not allow the anger expressed to be so expressed that the person who would be in front of you, even in fellowship, would sense that you have no love for Christ or love for them. You're able to forbear your anger. It is the presence of righteous indignation, but listen to this. It's also, because love is patient, it's also the absence of taking your own personal revenge. It's the absence of taking your own personal revenge. The world says that revenge is a dish best served cold, and that is true. But for the Christian, we don't get to serve revenge. As a Christian, we don't get to take our own personal revenge because there is one who is going to avenge his saints. There's one who is going to plead our case. We don't have to slam our fist and wonder why the world is as it is and wonder why people treat us and entreat us the way that they do because we identify with the Lord. For he said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. I believe him. We believe him. But to have a patient and enduring love is you essentially stave off the desire to take your own personal revenge. You will not take revenge upon those who deserve it. And then he says, love is kind. Love is kind. This is not simply for appearances sake. It's not to appear kind, but really have hatred in your heart. This is tied to action toward others. That the sum and substance of your actions is that you seek to benefit others. That you want benevolence and goodwill in the lives of those who are in fellowship with you. It is to be, listen to this, in the full service of others with gentleness and meekness before them. You're in their full service. It is the sense of goodness and goodwill toward others. For in this we see true Christian love. We see true Christian love. It's not enough here that Paul defines what it is, because in these first two, he certainly does that. But I believe that Paul wants us to know so much more. He defines what it is, and then he defines what it's not. I believe that that is a form of argument that Paul, by the Spirit, employs so as to attack the factions, but also to preserve the love of Christ in the church. That that strategy that he employs is to define what it is, but it's also helpful to define what something is not. He doesn't want them to simply do the positive. He wants them to avoid the negative. So then he goes to what love is not. It's not jealous. It's not envious. The idea here is boiling passion in the wrong direction. It is an eager pursuit, this enviousness, it's an eager pursuit of what someone else has, an eager pursuit. You see how that would be counter to love itself, so as to possess it for yourself. It is a zeal for covetousness. It is to want what they have, so much so that you will pursue it at the expense of the person who has it. And that can be anything. That can be anything. You see it here in practice with man and his wife. You see it here in practice with desecrating the Lord's table. They want leisure and hedonism and sinfulness. They want immorality. And they begin to pursue those things. 
And they begin to pursue what belongs to one another. It could be material or immaterial. But here Paul wrote that love, love is not like that. Love is not envious. Love is not stirred in a competition to possess whatever is in view at the cost of the other person. I believe that on this point, because I think it's helpful to make the connection to Corinth, I also think it's helpful to make the connection to the modern time in which we find ourselves. You'll see to this point, many places, and here is where the fine line of discernment is needed. Many places say that they love Christ. And many places in their own way try to act like they love Christ. But then they miss all the marks of what love is not. They envy one another. They compete against one another. They desire to possess position, status, acclaim, even their warped view of the gifts. They treat each other as though they're simply meant for commerce. The money that you possess, if you possess money, I will treat you well. James spoke very, very sharp against that. Love is not envious. It's not stirred up in rivalry and competition toward those who possess whatever is in view. But you see that in the modern church construct that so many are pursuing things that are at the cost of the other person, not for the other person, at the expense of the other person. So to this end, love is not boastful. Love is not boastful. It does not brag, the NASB says. And then he joins that with, and is not arrogant. Well, I believe that the two are very much related together, which is why grammatically I think they tie together. He says love is not boastful. It does not brag. It doesn't show off. It doesn't seek attention by puffing yourself up. And making yourself the centerpiece of people's affection. Why do I say it that way? Because they already had that going on in Corinth. There are factions among you. Where people are the centerpiece of other people's affections. Hero worship. Cults of personality. People who are heroes of their own stories. Love doesn't do that. Love doesn't brag. It doesn't show off. It doesn't seek to puff yourself up. I know so many would probably hear this and say, well, how in the world do you expect me to have a quote unquote ministry career? But we'll be honest here that if that's what you're after, you do not love. And you do not love how Christ loved. And you do not love Christ. Because in this, what we find is that love, the love of Christ, as a motivator, as a source for how we serve one another in the body of Christ, does not set itself up this way. It doesn't brag about self. We're told, and I summarize the wisdom of Scripture in that we're not to have... We're ourselves, we sing our own praises. Let another praise you. And if you receive honor, mutually return it, as it says in Romans. But Paul is very clear. 
on what this is and what this isn't. Love does not brag. It's not stirred up in competition before. It doesn't puff oneself up and make oneself the centerpiece of people's affection. What Paul does here is he describes what is taking place in Corinth, but he also disqualifies the practice of hero worship and personality cultism found in Corinth, embedded in the factions. But also what you find in modern evangelicalism, embedded in modern day celebrities who are both exalted by their peers and self-exalted. They are self-exalted people. Love does not need too much attention to draw others to the person. Because true love, born from Christ, wants everyone to love Christ. It's always pointing to him. Look to him. Love does not need the accolades and the applause of man. It doesn't need it. True love. Love wants everyone to bow down and worship toward Christ and Christ alone. That's true love. He says love is not puffed up. I like the way he words this because it is to say that love is not inflated or arrogant. You ever heard the phrase that there's there are people who have inflated view of themselves? This is what Paul refers to because, again, it's going on in court. That individuals have inflated view of themselves. And they have an inflated view of men. That's why Paul says, you were bought with a price, do not be slaves of men. Whatever we see has occurred in those who truly love and honor Christ, it is Christ as the source. It's not mentors. It's not professorships. It's not institutional. It's a work born of the spirit. Love is not inflated or arrogant. It's not prideful. Love is not prideful. And I would say, if you really look at this very carefully, because I don't want to give you the impression that this is simply poetic. I believe that it certainly sounds poetic, but I think there is something literal in view. That what Paul is really saying is, Love is not found in those who possess these qualities. He's not simply saying this is what love is, love personified. This is what love is not personified. He's saying those who possess these qualities on the negative side, they don't have the love of Christ. And then he's saying on the positive side, those who actually have the love of Christ possess these qualities. This isn't simply talking about action. It's not simply talking about action. Because the scorecard of hirelings is that sometimes they do these things and then sometimes they don't. And yet they stand before you and say, well, I love Jesus. I love the Lord. I love you. And that's not true. Because what Paul is essentially gaining at is that you have people. In view, not programs, not theories. He's talking about the action, yes, but also the qualities found in those who perform the action. That one who possesses love is patient, they're kind, they're not jealous, 
They're not bragging. They're not arrogant. Those who are proud, arrogant, self-willed, egotistical, they are not those who abide in Christ. They don't abide in Christ. Let us pause here. Why do you think Paul spent so much time defining love? Think about that. Think about that thought. Why do you think Paul spent so much time defining love? I believe it's also the same reason why he spent so much time defining the gifts. It is because within the factions, listen to this, within the factions, they were redefining love. They were redefining fellowship. They were redefining the gifts and everything else that we have covered so far. So Paul says, I have to define it for you. I have to help you understand what it means and what those who bear these things look like. Then he goes to verse five. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love, rather the one who claims to love, because remember what we said, it's not just love personified. It's not that the person who claims to love can in their essence be cruel, selfish, self-ambitious, and then sometimes demonstrate these qualities. It's that, no, the person who truly loves possesses these qualities. Love, rather the one who claims to love, does not act dishonorably. That's what he means by does not act unbecomingly in verse five. Does not act dishonorably or indecent toward others. There is nothing disgraceful about this love that Paul talks about. There's only honor and decency. There's only honor and decency. I think that there are within just what we've covered so far. So many pretenders. There's so many pretenders. Just on this front, we're known by our love, Jesus says, for one another. The world will know that we are his disciples. And then Paul defines what love truly is. And I think that there are so many pretenders because a lot of what we see is not like this. It doesn't look like the love that Paul describes. What he describes in that this love does not act unbecomingly is that it acts only honorably and decently. I believe that this true sense of love is tied to viewing others in the image of God. It is a genuine view of others as they are crafted in God's image. Yes, there is a time and place where you have to love people in spite of themselves. But one does not act disgracefully, plotting and scheming against each other and trying to arrive at the point of Christ's love. He says here, love is not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. It does not seek its own. It does not seek its own. What this essentially means is that love does not simply pursue its own objectives. It is not self-ambitious. 
It's not simply pursuing its own ambitions. Sure, people have ambitions. But when you have true Christ-like love, you don't have to pursue those ambitions at the expense of people. You pursue them for the people. In the truest sense. What he means by this also, that it does not seek its own, it's not a means to its own end. The world simply, in so many songs, in so many ways, so many social media campaigns and all the rest, calls people to love one another. And normally that is a self-seeking love that they're calling people toward. It's not a true love that's born from Christ. Because he says love is not self-centered. It's not self-centered. Love here then seeks the highest benefit of others. The highest benefit of others. Paul not only here is defining this love, but he's also modeling this love that he has defined. I think that's why when we look at Paul's epistles, I think we do get the sense that, yes, they resonate with us because we have God's spirit in us. But you also see that Paul provides an example of what he's actually writing. He says, I do this and this is what we're called to do. It's not simply you all should do this. I'm not going to do it. But this is what God commands. No, it's that I do this for you. And I'm doing this for you because Christ has willed it. He's commanded it. So he models the love that he has defined. I think that there's certainly an individual component to this. And I say that because we do not go the way of utilitarianism, which seeks in its mangled pragmatism the quote-unquote greater good. But there's always somebody at the top who is trying to be a steward of the greater good in a way that's pragmatic, that actually is dishonorable, that can be cruel. But Paul is not simply fixed and obsessed with this idea of community. He wants the individuals to practice what they do toward one another. And then when you have individuals loving like this, then you have a fellowship who loves like this. You see how that works? But today the difference is so many are saying, well, no, let's do this and we'll work its way down. And nobody's ever checking on the individuals. Well, that's a love that is self-seeking. A love that is based on organizational preservation. It's not what Paul calls us to. He says it's not self-seeking. You have to love the individuals. You have to love them like this. I believe that Paul is highlighting this positive and negative also as the goal of the Christian. That when a Christian sets their goals to do anything in the business of God's church, business in the true sense, that these are goals. That I have to do this with this love in my heart toward others. He also says that love is not provoked. In other words, love is not emotionally unstable. It's not emotionally unstable. 
Love is not provoked to anger. When you truly have love for God's people, you're not easily provoked to anger against them. Why would you want to murder them? Anger is likened to murder. Why do you become so angry against God's people? People who love the world, they shake hands with the world. But when it comes to God's people, they want to shut God's people down. Love is not emotionally unstable. I don't mean that in a psychological sense. I mean that in related to the constitution of man. That we are certainly compelled in our emotions toward people, but we are not unstable because we have a new nature residing in us, God's spirit residing in us. So love is not provoked to anger. Again, that doesn't mean we don't become angry. That means that when we do, we confess our sins before God because we know that it's not right to be provoked to anger if we truly have love. Also, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians then and what we receive for us now is that when you truly have love, it's not simply that you will never be provoked. People will test you. People will challenge you. People will try to get a rise out of you. They want to see you enraged and angry. Because if the world will know that we are his disciples, if we love one another, then the attack then is to make it appear as though we do not love one another. So that we dethrone our testimony before the watching world. Love is not easily provoked to anger. The feelings for the one who possesses the love of Christ are not easily irritated or roused to anger. Not easily irritated or roused to anger. But love also does not provoke. Love also does not provoke. It does not seek to jab at someone consistently and incite them to anger. To watch them explode. This goes two ways. If love is not provoked, then there's no provocation in love. He also says love does not take into account a wrong suffered. I know that that's hard. But we're not talking about life in the flesh. We're talking about life in the spirit. Love does not keep records of wrongs. Love does not ledger wrongs in order to use them in malice, bad will toward others. Love does not possess a pre-calculated, predetermined will to use wrongs as fuel to destroy others. Love is not simply experiential in the area of wrongs done to us. We all have suffered. Yet Christ has suffered for us. And Christ is the only one who is absolutely, perfectly innocent and without sin. Paul is not saying that people ought to take advantage of these things. What he's saying is that we are, we are not identified by the wrongs done to us. Love does not 
ledger wrongs. Doesn't take that kind of accounting. Doesn't use this wrong to destroy others. Love is not full of moral rottenness and wicked pragmatism to destroy people. I mean, you can come to this passage all day and talk about, you know, the world's like this. We know. But there are religious people who are like this. There are people who reside in so-called churches right now who keep records of wrongs. And they will destroy you if they feel offended. I'm talking about the clergy. I'm talking about the so-called laity. That's not love. That's not salvation. This is not the love of Christ. Certainly not the love of Christ. What Paul is talking about here is that moral rottenness. A sense in which when there's a wrong or perceived wrong, that you can expect complete and total revenge and retaliation to destroy people in their lives. Paul says love doesn't do that. Love is too busy trying to seek the highest benefit of others. We go back to the positive. Love is patient. It's kind. And if you truly are those things, you're not keeping a record of wrongs. I fear that the trouble that we face today, we have to be honest about it, is that so many have dressed apart, jumped in the pulpit, and have never tasted Christ's love. They've, they've never been loved by Christ, and so they don't know how to love others. And what they do is that any perceived wrong, they act like Satan would because they don't serve Christ. When you serve Christ and someone does wrong to you, yes, it's difficult. Yes, the mind and heart may want revenge, but the actions will certainly not give way in that temptation. That you only view people with this fact that God created them. So there's not this fuel to destroy others. That means verbally. That means in every practical way. That means physically. Taking a life. Character assassination. Slander. Well, why? Look at verse 6. Because love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Listen to this. Love does not promote. So I know I'm disqualifying what people define as love in the world today already. Love does not promote nor enjoy the things that God hates. It does not promote nor enjoy the things that God hates. I know it's popular today for suit and ties to say how much they love Christ. Only to employ Satan's wickedness. As though to achieve some righteous result that would be defined as God's love toward others. That's not true love. I know the world today says we need love. We have to love one another. Why can't we be more loving? And then what they really mean is to either participate, welcome, or promote unrighteousness. So long as it doesn't impact or affect us. 
But that's a false view of love because every sin impacts everyone. And not only that, we're called to love what God loves. It's not love to call people to that. It's hatred. It really is hatred to call people to love what God hates. Because that's calling people toward God's judgment. You see the deception there. You're telling people that God loves something that he actually judges. So then you find yourself on the opposite God, on the opposite side of God's mercy. It's not love. The love that delights in unrighteousness, the love, quote unquote, that delights in unrighteousness is hatred for the one who has defined love. It's hatred for the one who has defined love. So however, then love rejoices in the truth. Now, here's the thing. I want you to understand what it says. Love rejoices with the truth. Love doesn't simply like to possess the truth. It rejoices with having the truth. Because having the truth is an occasion to celebrate and rejoice and to be glad and to exercise the positives of love, to be patient, kind. We're rejoicing that we have it. One, because you and I didn't bring it to ourselves and didn't bring ourselves to it. We have it because of the one who gave it. It's not simply that he says love possesses the truth. It rejoices with the truth. It's not simply to say that we're on the side of truth. We rejoice that we're on the side of truth. It's not a burden to be on the side of truth. We don't find that it's some burdensome obligation to stand on God's side of the issues. It's that we rejoice that we're on God's side of the issues. We're thankful. So much so that we want other people to rejoice in the truth who are delighting in unrighteousness and error. It's celebratory. I can tell you that those who are not rejoicing in God's truth, they don't belong to God. They don't belong to God. Because love rejoices with the truth. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. This is in stark contrast to the caricature of love, even among Many in the, in the Corinthian church who delighted in unrighteousness. They called people to anger, malice, error, immorality. They do so today as well in society. That they call people to anger, malice, error, and immorality. And somehow they package that and say, you and I have to be more loving. But that's not what love is. We have to be more loving when we rejoice with the truth, when we rejoice with God's truth. That's how we demonstrate our love in the face of error. Because true love rejoices in God's truth. Where can God's truth be found? In Christ. Where do we find that? In the scripture. We find what Christ has commanded us, who Christ is, what Christ wants for us, what Christ teaches all in scripture. It can be then said that true love rejoices in God's word. In the truest sense of that. It's not simply that it rejoices in the theory of having God's word or the benefits temporally of God's word. But it rejoices in the fact that God's word is God's truth. 
So true love finds agreement. It's amazing that when you really look at this and it says, but rejoices with the truth, it's a counter to rejoicing in unrighteousness. People in unrighteousness agree. They agree. They might differ on certain points, but they agree that they hate God and righteousness. Therefore, those who stand for God and his truth can find agreement in the truth. There can be agreement in the truth. And people who don't believe that there can be an agreement with the truth, they're not marked by those who truly have God's love. You can agree. I know people will tell you that that's arrogant. That's idealism. To think that we can agree in God's word. No, we can. Because it's fully disclosed to us. True love, or those who possess it, desire and rejoice in God's actual righteous outcomes. They rejoice with God's actual righteous outcomes. As we peek ahead just a little bit, we'll look at a section that deals with the perfection of God's love. But I just want to have us look at verse 7. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things and endures all things. Paul isn't saying there that it's exploited, manipulated, that it's naive. That it doesn't have a measurement. It's just this idea of theoretical hope and endurance. He's talking about in, in the face of eternity. He's talking about with the hope that we have that Jesus Christ will soon return. He's saying with that, love is then enduring and persevering to that end, to that goal. That's the goal of love. Because if that's the goal of love then that will, in fact, impact the way you treat people in the life that we have together here now. If you can view love through an eternal scope, you view people through an eternal scope. That's what Paul is saying. And so next time we'll look at the perfection of love and how it relates to our fellowship in Christ. Let's pray.